Welcome to the Plain Faith Podcast, Episode 3. Some of the airstrips are the most challenging in the world. They're literally hanging off the sides of mountains. They have slopes up to 19%, and uh, some of the airstrips are as short as 300 meters or 900 feet. And on takeoff, we have to decide whether we're going to take off the moment we release our brakes. The Plain Faith Podcast is a podcast about missionary aviation and the stories of missionary aviators who have taken seriously Jesus' command to go and make disciples of all nations and are using airplanes to be His witnesses at the ends of the earth. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Your host for today's show will be Jimmy Tidmore, who, in addition to hosting this podcast, is a pastor and a pilot residing with his family in what is known as the Rocket City, Huntsville, Alabama. He is very interested in promoting missionary aviation and helping prospective missionary pilots reach the mission field. And now, with these introductions out of the way, let's get started on another great episode of the Plain Faith Podcast. Welcome to the Plain Faith Podcast. My name is Jimmy Tidmore, and I want to thank you for joining us for this episode of the show. I am very excited about our episode for today, but I am also very excited about how well this podcast has been received so far. I appreciate everyone who has let me know how much they are enjoying it. I am thankful for the reviews that have been left so far in iTunes. Those really help us get the word out about the show, so thank you to those who have helped in that way. And if you are enjoying the show and haven't left us a review yet, hit the pause button and head over to iTunes right now and do that for me. I'd really appreciate it. Also, I want to say thank you to everyone who has helped spread the word with your friends and family on social media. This is definitely the best way you can help with the show. So thank you for being a part in that way and helping out. I really do appreciate it. But now it's time to turn our attention to today's guest. His name is Fran Burgess, and he's a missionary pilot serving with his family in Papua New Guinea. And I'm confident you are going to enjoy hearing him tell his story. Fred, I'm very excited about having you on this episode of the podcast. I am really looking forward to hearing about how God led you and your family to Papua New Guinea and about the work you are doing there. So welcome to the Plain Faith Podcast. I thank you so much for joining us for this episode. No, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you for inviting me. I, I'm looking forward to this. Great. Well, let's begin by getting into the questions about yourself and your family. For example, where are you from? Where did you grow up? And so forth. Sure. Uh, My dad was in the Air Force. So when I was young, we traveled around quite a bit. But eventually, we settled down in San Antonio, Texas. Um, It's probably not what you're thinking. My dad wasn't a pilot. So that's not how I really became interested in aviation. He was a dentist. So I didn't really grow up around planes at all. But um, I always uh, appreciated looking at them from the ground. And my parents weren't Christians when I was first born, but they became Christians when I was quite young. And uh, I thought it was really neat for me to see them grow as believers as I grew up, and what a blessing that was for me. Did you have brothers and sisters? Oh, yeah, I had uh, two brothers, and uh, one older and one one younger, so I'm in the middle. And now you're married, right? 
Yeah, so I've been married for almost 15 years to my wife, Janice, um, who happens to be a missionary kid from Bolivia, South America. And uh, we have two kids, an eight-year-old son and a five-year-old daughter. All right. Tell us about how you became a, a follower of Jesus. Yeah, that's a good question. I put my faith in Jesus when I was quite young. Like I said, grew up in a Christian household. My parents loved God and uh, raised me to to love God as well. And I believe I uh, put my faith in Him quite young, around five or six years old. But my life was really to, to please my parents and uh, not to get in trouble. So uh, it wasn't for the real, like for good reasons. It was all for selfish reasons, so I wouldn't be in trouble. But after uh, getting close to graduations, I realized, high school graduation, I realized I was just kind of floundering, trying to seek my own thing after high school. I bounced from college to college, trying to find out what to do with my life. All along in the back of my mind, I was thinking, I knew God was calling me to some type of ministry, but that's not what I really wanted it to do. So I just kept pursuing my own desires, and that's just a to make money and have an American life. But I was unhappy and uh, just uh, couldn't find peace anywhere. So I was in uh, college and I was working with the youth at our church there. And I finally just asked my youth pastor who I was helping out with, what what should I do? And he said, you know, why don't you just go try a, a small Bible college that I attended in Alabama and see where God leads you from there. So I finally said, Lord, you know, you are good and you know what's good for my life and I will submit and I'll take the first step to ministry. Still not sure what you or where you're going to have me go, but I'll go and ended up going to Southeastern Bible College in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. All right. And so tell me about your call to missions and your passion for aviation and, and how those two things developed and then how they came together. So when I was at Southeastern Bible College, I met Janice there, and uh, that's where we got married. Um, but meanwhile, the whole time I was when I was going to school there, I, I had no idea really where God was uh, pointing me. Um, Janice's dad is a church planner, and uh, he's very outgoing, and he's talented in that way. Um, and uh, I, I looked up to him, but I knew that that's not how I could serve. And um, so during a trip to go visit her parents in Bolivia, um, we went to go visit the church, the first church she planted in a, a really remote village, and we had to take a, a mission airplane out. And on our way out, the it was funny because the uh, there was a lot of storms around, and it was really windy. And um, as we took off in the Cessna 206, I was seated right next to the pilot. He let me sit up front next to him, and... Uh, the wind was just throwing us all around and Janice and her mom were in the back seat, terrified and thinking that the plane may go down at any moment. And meanwhile, I was up in the front seat, loving it and having a, a blast. And at that moment, that's when the light bulb came on and said, hey, this is something you could do. And you could you could serve me by flying airplanes and helping others. And so through that, I started to think about it. And when we landed even despite the rough flight, Janice came up to me and afterwards and said, you know, I, I think you should be a missionary pilot. And so from there on, we started to pursue that and uh, started headed toward that direction. I graduated from uh, Southeastern Bible College and went directly from there to Moody Aviation, which had just moved to Spokane, Washington at the time. And so I started my flight training there. 
Was that the first time you had been in a small plane? Yeah, it actually was the first time in a small airplane. First time in a small airplane and everyone thought you were going to die. And yet that's how you were called uh, to, to, to do <laughs> exactly. that sort of thing. That's pretty cool. Your call to missions and your call to missionary aviation are really then one and the same. You had felt that God was leading you to some sort of ministry. You didn't know what. You went to uh, Southeastern Bible College in Birmingham, and you go on this trip, and you at the same time, it becomes clear to you that missions work and missionary aviation are one and the same. Am I summarizing all that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Most of my fellow missionary aviators start off flying, and then they pursue missions. I was kind of the opposite, where I started flying to go do missions. So yeah, it's a little bit, yeah, a little bit different than others. But yeah, I feel that that's just how God called me into missions. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And and I like to hear about everyone's call to the mission field, because they're all a little bit different. And yeah, I think it's important for people listening to the show to understand that there's not really a stereotypical way that it happens. It happens uniquely for each individual, and you have to be sensitive to how God is leading you based on your uh, personalities and your your personality traits and your giftings and, and so forth, and don't be looking necessarily at how God did it uh, with, with someone else. He will, he will call you and lead you in the way that is best uh, for you. So I appreciate you sharing that story. I would like to ask you if you have any other advice for someone uh, who is wrestling with a with a call to missions? Maybe listening to the to this episode. Is there any help that you could give them as they are working uh, through that? It sounds like you sort of struggled through it for for a, a time, and and I wonder if you have any advice or tips that you could give to folks who are doing the same thing. Yeah, I just want to say when I was jumping around from one college to the other, trying to do my own thing, but at that time I had no peace. I knew God was calling me to some type of ministry, but I just kept running because, yeah, I wanted to pursue my own pursue my own desires. But once I decided to obey God, I had this peace and joy that filled me that I had never felt before, and it was it was refreshing. And following Christ on this crazy journey has not always been easy, and it has been difficult and full of trials. But I wouldn't have it any different way because. There's so so much contentment and fulfillment when you're in God's will. Right. So you once you finally said, okay, I, I hear you, and I'm going to go in this direction, although I'm not exactly sure where you're leading me yet, but I, but I know that you're leading me into some type of ministry work. There was a clear confirmation just from the peace that you had inside. Is that correct? Exactly, exactly. So you go with your, your new bride— to see her parents in Bolivia, you take this airplane ride that really, I, I think, without being too dramatic, it changed the direction of your life, I guess we could say. From there, I know you went to Moody, but that wasn't immediate, right? You were still at Southeastern Bible College. Did you pursue aviation in any other way and before you got to Moody, or did you wait until you got to Moody to, to do any, any official training? I I waited until I was officially at Moody, um, until I started officially training. So yeah, I waited about it. From the moment we decided to, before getting to Moody was about two years. And so tell us about your flight training 
experience at Moody. Obviously, probably most of the listeners know by now that, that Moody is a, is a great school and lots of missionary aviators on the mission field uh, today have trained there. But tell us about your flight training experience there. I would say the flight training at Moody is excellent. Um, it's uh, intense for sure, and there are days when you're exhausted, but I think the uh, experience is second to none, the training second to none. They have flight instructors that have served all over the world, so you're getting a vast array of experience. Not only do they care that you become a good pilot, that they, but they care that you uh, are a a godly person and they train you in that way. And it's a great school. Uh, it's not the only school, but it's a great school. Uh, you start off with two years of maintenance and then you do two years of flight and uh, in between or all around there, you're getting Bible classes. So you're always uh, involved in some type of Bible class throughout your training. Okay. And so how did the maintenance side go and how did the, the flying side go and, and which one uh, was the the most difficult and which one was the easiest, I guess? Yeah, the maintenance went well, although I, I am glad I'm a pilot. Um, I don't think I could do maintenance full-time, although I know there's those out there who love maintenance, and, I, and I'm glad for it because I'd rather be up in the air flying. But it was a great experience learning how things work. I think it, it, it makes you a, a good pilot to know how your airplane is designed and runs and works. Um, the two years of flight were great. They're full of they're full days. I think uh, there's a couple of semesters where we started at five thirty in the morning and didn't end until about four or five in the afternoon. Oh goodness! But uh, it was it was a great experience. I really enjoyed it. I would recommend it to anyone who wants to do mission aviation for a career. Yeah. So when you when you finished at Moody, about how many flight hours did you have? I had close to, I think, 350, 400 hours thereabouts, yeah. Did you need to build more time after you finished Moody? Yeah, that's an interesting story in itself. Uh, When we decided to go with Wycliffe, they require at least 500 hours. So I had about 150 hours to make up. And so when we moved back to Birmingham, I was looking for a flying job. And uh, I applied to Auburn University to, to instruct there. and at the time, the chief pilot was a former missionary pilot from Africa, and he saw my resume and he said, you know, I, I don't have room for you now, but maybe in a couple of months we can work you in. And so I waited around a couple of months and then eventually he called me back and I got a job at Auburn and I had my 500 hours in one semester. So it happened real quick. So that was a really cool thing. So... You built your 500 hours up and then you knew at that point that you wanted to go with Wycliffe already. You had zeroed in on Wycliffe. That's correct. That's correct. Janice and I, we had talked about which organization we should join. And we, we know there's all these great organizations out there. So it was one of our hardest decisions to figure out, but we really just felt like, man, the Bible is such an important thing and that we really want people to know that God loves them by being able to read or hear the word of God in their own language. And uh, so we felt really convicted and passionate about that. So that's how we decided to join Wycliffe Bible Translators. Okay. And, and help me understand, help the listeners understand 
how Wycliffe and jars are related and so forth? Oh, yeah, good question. I always get that question, so it's a good one. So Wycliffe is the organization you're joining. JARS is the training organization and technical support. So they provide technical support for the translators or other missionaries on the field, as well as training. So they help further train the pilots as well. So Moody is a great school, but the places we fly are quite intense and quite uh, different from the places in the U.S. So we need extra training and some extra support as well here when we fly. Okay, so Wycliffe is the organization, but JARS is the part of that organization or a group that's affiliated with Wycliffe that gets you ready to actually fly on the mission field. Is that correct? Correct. So Wycliffe is the organization and JARS is a support branch of Wycliffe. Okay, and and Wycliffe's primary focus is Bible translation and getting Bibles into languages and, and even helping people develop written languages who do not have it so they can have a Bible in those languages. Is that right? That is correct. That is correct. Yes, yeah, just a just a great organization. And and I can certainly see why you would you would feel led in in that direction. And you are absolutely correct to say there's there's many really good missionary aviation organizations and they sort of have uh, maybe slightly different focuses. And Wycliffe's is very much on the, the Bible translation uh, side. So that's something that, that is very important to me uh, as well. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that is where you are, you're serving. Now, why don't you tell us, though, about the process? So you, you and your wife, Janice, realize, hey, we really feel that Bible translation is important. We really feel it's important that that people from all over the world have the Bible in their their own uh, language, and so that's where we want to serve. But what was the process? You you get on at Auburn University and cross that that five hundred hour mark in a single semester, and then what's the process from Auburn to getting actually on board with Wycliffe and to the mission field? So after that first semester, um, I went and took a technical evaluation at JARS, which uh, we fly and do maintenance, and they just evaluate us, see how well we are at learning or adapting to new things. You get to fly a wonderful airplane called the Helio, Helio Courier. Not very many out there, but uh, a very challenging but fun airplane to fly. So if you ever get a chance, I would recommend it. And then, uh, so once you pass that, you're invited to join Wycliffe and you join Wycliffe and then you go through some courses to help you learn more about Wycliffe and more about uh, what you are going to be doing. And uh, then you have to raise your own support as uh, Wycliffe missionaries. So we spent about uh, a year and a half doing that. I was working at Auburn still at that time and we were actually headed to uh, Cameroon, Africa at that time. Um, That's where they needed us. And so we went off to France to learn uh, French because that's what they speak in Cameroon. And uh, while there, we had a, I, I call it God's speed bump to slow us down. And reali- and we were told that we didn't need to go to Cameroon anymore and that they wanted us to go to Papua New Guinea. And we don't look at that time as a waste, but um, we felt like it was uh, God preparing us for our time here in Papua New Guinea and, and getting us ready to serve here. Okay. 
Before we go on and talk about the mission field, I'd like maybe for you to tell us a little bit about, you know, you went to your technical evaluation. What are they looking for in, in a pilot candidate? Are there specific characteristics, specific things about the way they handle the airplane that they are sort of on the lookout for before they invite you to, to join the organization? Yeah, they're looking for someone who's professional, someone who uh, strives for excellence. Um, we all know that perfection is not obtainable here on earth, but we should strive to be as, as good and as excellent as we can be. I'm looking for someone who can learn on their own. So as you're flying the helio, they're going to ask you to do a maneuver, and then the next day they're going to ask you to do the same maneuver and see if you do that maneuver better than you did it the day before. They're looking for a teachable attitude, someone who... Uh, who is willing to learn and take instruction and also someone who just has a heart to, to serve. Okay. So are there things that you could say maybe to someone who feels like maybe God is leading them to missionary aviation? Maybe there's even someone listening to this, this show who's in training, flight training and, and mechanic training right now to, to do that. Are there some things that you could say to them that would help them to prepare for that technical evaluation? Yeah, I would say strive to be a professional, regardless if you're just going up by yourself to have a, a fun flight or taking up a family member or doing it as a job. Strive to be professional. Do things the correct way, the right way. Try to do them every time the same way. I would also suggest that. Uh, just hold yourself up to a high standard. So when you're coming in to land at a 10,000-foot runway, pick a spot where you want to land and land on that spot. Um, just it teaches discipline, self-discipline, and just how to be a better aviator. Okay. Well, so tell us about the place that you're serving. What is it like and, and how has it been different from what you're used to back here at home and, and what are some of those things that have been difficult for you and, and your family to adjust to? Sure. So we're serving in Papua New Guinea. Uh, it's, a, a, it's on the North side of Australia um, on an Island. Uh, it borders Indonesia and uh, it's quite a rural uh, country. Uh, lots of people still live out in what we call the bush or in the jungle, there's uh, most people in this country do not have electricity, running water. Um, they just live by the mean, like by living off the ground and off the land that God's given them. We actually live in a uh, kind of a, a remote town, I would call it, in the middle of the highlands. So we live in the mountains. There's over 800 different languages here in Papua New Guinea. Um, many of them still need translation work to start or have started, but we're still working on those. And many of those places are out in the very remote parts of the country where you can only get there by either airplane or by hiking or walking many, many days to get to these places. So the, the need for an airplane in this country is, is quite valuable. And, uh, to be honest, most people in the remote villages have either ridden on a plane before they have ridden on a car. So it's very different than in the United States. 
so in addition to the the flight training that that side of the training that you did with with jars and with with Wycliffe how else did they prepare you for moving your family to literally the other side of the world and how did they prepare you to uh, be ready to to live in a in a very different culture and in a very different place well, before we arrive here, we have a two-month training at JARS itself where they talk about culture, how we differ in culture, how we can treat each other, and uh, how to to avoid uh, faux pas, so to speak, cultural faux pas. And uh, so the two-month training was invaluable. Uh, I would suggest if you're ever going to live in another country, you need some type of cross-cultural training. And then secondly, when we arrive in PNG, we have another training that's specific to PNG. And uh, we spend, uh, I believe it's six weeks just in a, a course. And then we spend five weeks in the village just living with uh, people from PNG and uh, just learning the language here, the, the local trade language, talk Pisin. And then we also just learn how to live with them. So it's it's quite invaluable. Okay. So Jars and Wycliffe, they didn't just toss you out there and say, go fly. They, they know the value of, of being able to work with that culture and understand the, the cultural differences as best as you can. Obviously, you're not going to grasp it all in, in weeks' time. You're, in years' time, you're still working on it. But there's more to it than just the, the flight flight training side. There's there's the whole cultural aspect of it as well. Sure, they know that life overseas is stressful enough, and they want to help prepare you to be here for the long term. Right. So they want us to be here and serve the people across the world. Well, can you think of something that took you completely by surprise about being on the mission field, something that you just... I did not expect and was a surprise to you. I have a couple of things. Uh, one of them was uh, I'm still shocked of how isolated people are out in this country. I'll be flying over trees and trees and all of a sudden you'll see a couple of little village houses in the middle of nowhere. And these people are truly isolated. And you can see how there are 800 different languages in this country is that it just the terrain and the the uh, environment is not suitable for travel by land. The second is more to do with missions is the constant flow of people. Either they're leaving or coming or going on furlough or people are changing roles, doing something different than what they came here to do. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a, a tough um, adjustment to have a constant flow of people leaving or coming. And yeah, it's hard to get used to to people, your friends maybe leaving to go on furlough or they're coming back. It's a tough uh, transition for sure. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you were sort of trained culturally to avoid those cultural faux pas that, that we tend to make when we go and, and live with people from another part of the world and with different cultural mindsets. But I imagine that there were times where you did make a cultural faux pas or there is some occasion where uh, there's a funny story because you didn't understand the language or something along those lines. Do you have anything like that that you would that you would like to share? 
Yeah, that, I was uh, flying to this airstrip. It's in the middle of the mountains and uh, in a valley, actually. And uh, there's no road to this place. And as a community service, we help fly uh, coffee out of these places and bring them into the bigger cities so they can be sold and uh, the farmers can make money. And I was flying into this one airstrip to do that and landed and got out of the airplane and said, I'm going to be flying such and such person's coffee. And they looked at each other and said, okay. And then everybody was just standing around looking at me. And I said, is his coffee here? And they said, it is. I said, okay, you can go get it and I'll get the plane ready. And they just looked at each other and then they started talking amongst themselves. I couldn't quite hear what they were saying. And then two of the guys left and I went to go get the plane ready to load for coffee. And all of a sudden I hear this loud banging and breaking of wood and, and tearing of metal. And I look out the airplane and I see the people where they're storing the coffee are, are ripping the side of the wall off of the coffee house. And apparently the person who had the key was in another village far away and wasn't there to open it. And so to get the coffee, they just, instead of telling me that the, it was all locked up, they just decided, okay, we'll just tear a hole in the wall and give the pilot his coffee. So I always look at that and kind of just laugh. Now, now, is that something about their culture where it would have been uncomfortable or inappropriate for them to say, no, you'll have to come back? Yeah, in their culture, you don't really tell somebody no or I can't do that. Uh, it, they feel like that's that's shameful to do that to somebody, to tell them that they can't do what you're asking. And so instead of just saying no, that the guy's not here, they went and made it happen, I guess. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's easier for them to tear a wall off a building than it is to tell you no. Exactly. Makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, that's that, but that's what you're talking about here when it's about understanding a, a culture. That something that seems uh, very strange to us, it, that's not strange to them. And that's part no, of that's what normal you, day. That's normal life. Yeah. Yeah. So, and we can't uh, judge that or or, or 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 pass judgment on that at all. No, we can't. Can so, and, and that's part of that's part of getting used to the to the culture there. So, yeah, that's a really good story. Thank you for uh, sharing it. Well, why, don't, why don't we transition now? And talk about the the airplanes and and the flying. These are things that certainly the folks listening to this show are interested in, and and so something I'm definitely interested in hearing about as well. Tell us about the the plane or the planes that you fly and work with, and the the type of flying that you normally do. I know that you're doing things that are that are focused on promoting Bible translation, but what does that look like? And, and you've mentioned this flying this coffee. What are the sorts of flying activities that you do, and what are the airplanes that, that are being used there to accomplish those goals? Right now, uh, we have narrowed our uh, airplanes to just one type of airplane. We're flying the, the Kodiak, which is a great bush airplane. And so we fly that around the country, and we serve uh, not only... Uh, translators, but also other missionaries as well. Um, so we fly them in and out of uh, the remote areas of PNG or Papua New Guinea. So we do about uh, 80% of mission work, and then uh, between 10 to 15, maybe up to 20% of what we call uh, community service or commercial work. 
And so we not only want to meet the the physical or the spiritual needs of the people here, we also want to meet, help them physically. And so we help fly them out either their coffee or fly in store goods. They don't have stores where these people live, so we fly in food, rice, noodles, and all sorts of other stuff. We also help them uh, if someone's hurt, they'll give us a call and we'll fly do a, a medevac. So we'll fly them out of the villages and into the bigger cities where there there are better hospitals. And we also do a small portion of commercial work, which helps us subsidize the cost for translators or other missionaries. So it helps lower the cost of flying for the other people who use our airplane. How many Wycliffe pilots are in Papua New Guinea and and how many are sort of based in the same location as you? We have eight to nine Kodiak pilots and then we have uh, two to three helicopter pilots. So we also fly, we also have two helicopters as well. So we have four Kodiaks and two helicopters. We are all based in uh, what we call Ukarumpa. That's where we're at, and we're all based there. But we we do fly to a region of the country, and we'll spend the night out in that region and do work, and then fly back the next day or in a couple of days back to Ukarumpa. But we're all based in Ukarumpa. Okay, so the, so Wycliffe has a single base in PNG and you take trips to different parts of the country and, and do your work there and maybe stay the night and, and then come back. That's correct. That's correct. So just for curiosity's sake, cause I'm interested and I know other folks are interested as well. What other sorts of, of planes have you flown in your training? You, you mentioned the, the helio courier that you flew with when you're training at jars. What about the planes that you flew at, at Moody? The main trainer at Moody was the Cessna 172. Uh, we also flew a Cessna 185 and a 182 retractable gear, as well as the Cessna 206. So those were the planes at Moody that we, we flew. By far, I guess my favorite one of those was the 185. It was quite, a, quite an exciting airplane to fly. And then after that, uh, I've, I got a sometime in a Pilatus PC-6, which was really fun. Another tail oh, dragger. Cool. Um, that was a fun airplane to fly. Um, Super Cub. Uh, a home-built uh, called a Cristavia. That was a neat airplane, kind of like a champ. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I got to fly lots of cool airplanes. This, a Cirrus. Been able to fly a Cirrus. All right. But would and you, are you saying that out of all of those, the 185 was your your favorite or was that just your favorite at Moody? That was just my favorite movie. I think the Kodiak is one of my favorites as well as the PC-6. PC-6 is a very versatile airplane, but uh, the Kodiak is, is the, the people who designed it, designed it to fit a niche and it really works well here in PNG. It's, it's faster than the PC-6, maybe not by much, but it is. And that makes up a big difference when we're flying all over the country and it can land in short distances and, and it carries quite a bit as well. So yeah, it's a good it's a good airplane. Yeah, from from what I have learned about it and 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 know about it, it seems like the perfect plane for the type of flying that you're doing. And I guess that makes sense because that is what they designed it for. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So how would you say that flying there in in Papua New Guinea compares to the flying that you were doing back home? I would say when you pull back on the yoke, the airplane goes up, 
and you push down on the yoke and the airplane goes down. That's about the only similarity <laughs> of flying in PNG is very different than the States. Um, we have no radar coverage except for in one city, one small city. Uh, no reliable weather info. We have to call people on the ground or radio them. And if they really want us, they'll kind of not give the whole story, I guess I should say. The weather is ever changing. We deal with uh, trade winds instead of uh, fronts. Uh, we don't have frontal weather. We have uh, wind. Our weather is driven by the wind and uh, the terrain is, I know it's very different from Alabama. Alabama is quite flat and here we have mountains rising all the way up to 15,000 feet. And then we have also flatlands. So we have everything in between. So it's quite different here. Interesting. What would you say is the most exciting part about being a missionary pilot there? Most exciting, I would say the landings are some of the most challenging some of the airstrips are the most challenging in the world. Uh, they're literally hanging off the sides of mountains. Uh, they have slopes up to 19%. And uh, some of the airstrips are as short as 300 meters or 900 feet. And on takeoff, we have to decide whether we're going to take off the moment we release our brakes or we have to, or the, our abort points are brake release. So it's quite intense. Um, the terrain is amazing. It's amazing to see God's uh, design amongst this this country. It's just so beautiful and varied. We have jungle to to dry land to plains. It's just it's just amazing to see. But I think the most exciting thing I get to see is uh, when we actually deliver Bibles to to a people group that haven't heard or seen God's word in their own language, and it's just. I get emotional just thinking about it, and I see these missionaries as we deliver them in to the to these village to deliver Bibles, and how they've spent their whole lives doing this one thing, and it's coming to an end, and they're get they're giving the the people there God's word, and it just that's what I get excited about. I think that's really cool. Yeah, something that we just take for granted. I mean, I'm sitting here in my office. And if I wanted to, to look around, I mean, I, I don't know how many Bibles that I have sitting in my office and however number of different uh, translations. And and uh, and we forget that there are people uh, living in parts of the world who, who do not have the Bible in their own language, who do not have a complete Bible in their own language, and that there are individuals working diligently to, to make uh, that happened, and then there are folks like you who are who are working to to facilitate that through uh, transporting these these translators, and then eventually the the final product out to very grateful people. So yeah, that's that is a a really good uh, story for you to share. Now you've you've mentioned that the airstrips are some of the most challenging in the world, what else would you say is, is difficult about the, the flying aspect of, of your work there? I would say weather is, is always an issue. Um, we could fly 20 minutes away from our home base and land. And by the time we take off, the weather is totally different. Uh, very 
to the point to where we may not be able to get back home and we'll have to land somewhere else and stay the evening or wait till the, the weather clears up. Uh, the weather's changes so rapidly here that it can, can be uh, very challenging as well as the terrain since the terrain just rises out of the ground so quickly um, and so high, you're never sure if you're going to be able to get around this mountain because of clouds are in the way or, or what. So I would definitely say weather and terrain are, are the most challenging factors of flying here in PNG. Yeah, it was interesting to hear you talking about the fact that in the States, our weather really is controlled by fronts, frontal systems. And for the most part, if I want to know what the weather is going to be tomorrow in Alabama, I, you know, look over in Mississippi, right? And 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 there's yeah. usually a front moving from west to east and, and so forth. But if it's not too difficult for us to understand, could you help us a little bit understand how the weather does work there? Are you saying that there's just no rhyme or reason to how uh, the weather develops? We have uh, two seasons in PNG. Uh, it's usually a northwest wind or a southeast wind. And depending on those winds, it kind of gives us a clue of what the weather is going to be like. So when the wind's blowing one particular direction, it will drive the weather up into the mountains on that side of the range. And usually the other side of the ranges is going to be better. Not always great, but better. And vice versa. Um, it's always difficult to to anticipate what's going to happen with the winds like that because sometimes the the weather is is beautiful and other days you you may not be able to take off and it all just varies on uh, what the weather and the moisture content is of that day. All right, well I appreciate you you sharing uh, that with us. Tell me about some of your your best memories or favorite stories from the mission field. You you mentioned that you have really enjoyed uh, seeing a, a Bible translation uh, arrive at a at a particular uh, place with missionaries who have been working on that for for years, sometimes decades, and and seeing the excitement of the people there. Are there some other stories, or maybe some particular examples of those sorts of things that years from now, when you uh, are no longer out on the mission field and are are uh, sitting back thinking about it, are there some things that have happened that will stand out to you, you think, for the rest of your life? One story is I was able to deliver uh, a translator and some Audi Bibles. We call them Audi Bibles because they're audio Bibles because many people here can't read, but it was an auto Bible in their, their language. And when they started to hear the Bible being presented through that speaker, um, tears just started rolling down this person's face and just started to hug the translator. And um, it was amazing to see that um, just how passionate this person was to, to actually finally to receive the word of God in their own language. Another thing I really enjoy about flying here in PNG is you get to fly the same missionaries all over and you start to develop relationships with them. And one family, they have a, a daughter and I was flying that family out quite a bit. And finally the daughter started calling me her pilot. Hmm. And so she would be, Hey mom, there's my pilot. And, uh, we'd be at the store and I'd see her and she'd be like, hey, 
there's my pilot. It's just it's just neat to be able to develop those relationships as well as you're flying people all around the country. Yeah, I, I bet so. That's really cool. Well, also, I know that amidst the excitement and the stories like what you have just shared, that there have undoubtedly been struggles along the way. I imagine there were struggles uh, with your flight training. Uh, maybe there were financial struggles. I know that oftentimes that the finances required to complete your training are, are steep. And uh, maybe you would like to share about some of the struggles getting to the mission field, maybe even down to, you know, a particular maneuver that you struggled with or a particular rating or, or maybe even a failed check ride along the way. Why don't you shed some light on those things for, for the folks listening? Sure. In my initial training, the thing that I struggled with the most was, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this, but radio calls. Oh, radio calls were always the hardest for me. I would sit there and practice it before I'd say it. But once I pushed that button, my mind would go into a blank and I would just mess up everything I was trying to say. And then my instructor would have to quickly get on the radio and fix everything I just messed up. And so I never thought I'd be able to just confidently talk through the radio. But I, I struggled through it. And now I'm here in PNG and where they talk with heavy accents and the the radios don't work so well and we're using HF and I can barely understand them, but I'm making it through and I'm making radio calls like I was, like I was born to do it. So that was one thing I always struggled with. Um, finances, man, finances are tough. Flying is expensive. And I thought we were crazy, but when we first started flight school, Janice and I really felt like God was asking us to take a leap of faith and try to get through flight school debt free. And I was I didn't think we'd be able to do it, but I said if you want us to try, I'll try. And it was amazing how God provided through either scholarships or our local church uh helping us out or people giving generously. We even actually had a a church in uh, Spokane who would who had a uh food bank and they would let us come in and we would be able to get food and just to help cut down on costs and we ate beans and rice a lot but through that all God allowed us to get through school debt free and we feel so blessed and amazed that God could do such a miraculous thing um it was definitely not easy but we feel like God was faithful through it through it all yeah there's no question that is uh, not something that you did on your own because it is very expensive and um, most folks do not and are not able uh, to make it through without, without debt. So that that's a a great testimony to, to God's faithfulness and um, probably to some uh, creativity on your own part as well, but, but mostly uh, to, to God's uh, faithfulness there. So yeah, thank you for sharing both of those things. I, I am curious going back to the, uh, you probably want me to leave this alone, but going back to the, the struggles with the, the radio work, that's a common struggle, right? For, for guys who are in, guys or gals who are in flight training. Um, is there anything that you could recommend for someone who may be listening that's having that, that same struggle? Yeah, if uh, your instructor or somebody you know could just write out what to say and 
And most importantly, what you anticipate to hear back. I think that's a big key is what do you expect the, the person to, to say when you call them? Um, expecting, knowing what people are going to say makes life so much easier. So if you can learn what people are going to be saying or even going on to, I know there's apps out there that you can listen to, to ATC transactions and stuff that I think that helps out so much. And, uh, just even if you have to just practice it on the ground. I know I would sit in the, in the Cessna 172 by myself, just pretending I was flying and acting out what I would say when I took off and what I'd say when I was departing the area. And eventually it, all that, uh, that, uh, pretending paid off. Yeah. The, the, the sort of the, the armchair flying or the, the couch flying, and, and working through those radio calls and, and uh, yeah, the apps like live ATC, I, I think that's some good advice. Uh, you can, for folks who aren't familiar with live ATC, it's an app that you can uh, download on your phone. They have a, a website too, I believe at liveatc.net and you can uh, pick an airport and, and listen to the uh, communications between the, the pilots and, uh, the controllers at those airports. And um, I think that w- that would be a very helpful too. I know that would have been helpful to me uh, years ago when I was, I was learning to fly because it, it can be uh, difficult uh, to do. And it's, it is intimidating and you do key that mic and get that mic uh, fright. So uh, what you're describing, I think is something that, that most of us uh, struggle with at least a little bit along the way. Well, what would you say were um, some of the biggest obstacles that you dealt with in in getting uh, to the mission field? Definitely flight hours. That's a hard one for for us to get as pilots is to get enough hours to where we can actually join a mission or get a job. Um, I happened, I waited, I think, uh, six or seven months before I finally got a job that was able to help me get the flight hours, but I just put out applications everywhere. And finally, God provided through a a fellow believer at Auburn University. Another obstacle is just the amount of time it can take to get to the field. I know when I started um, flight training to the point where we actually got here in country was was about 10 years. And that's a long time. And uh, it just starts to it just seems like forever sometimes, and uh, it can seem uh, discouraging, but I would just say hang in there and just uh, trust God knows what he's doing and where he's leading you and just keep preparing and keep doing your best. And along the way, just trust God. Yeah. And would you say that part of that uh, time of, of waiting and, and persevering is really uh, God is using that to prepare you for uh, where you're going to be and what you're going to have to endure and persevere while you're there? I would say most definitely. I mean, I talked earlier about how we were assigned to go to Cameroon, Africa, but all along, we believe God was leading us toward Papua New Guinea. And uh, we just needed that extra time for God to mold us and shape us and get us ready for our time to serve here. Um, it was definitely, uh, uh, it was hard when we found out we were not going to Cameroon, but we felt like, you know, God's in control and we just, we just weren't ready to go to PNG when we thought, and now we, now we are. And so, yeah, it was, it was, it was tough. 
Yeah, God certainly wasn't surprised that uh, there was a change of plans, right? He knew that all along and was uh, using that for uh, some purpose, and um, we don't always know those those purposes, but uh, he's in control, and it it was no the change of plans wasn't a surprise uh, to him. He was orchestrating that change of plans all along. Exactly. What about struggles that you have dealt with since being on the mission field? Good question. Uh, struggles, friends leaving because parents are sick and they need to go take care of them, or they're just going. They feel like their time here is done and they're going to start a new life back in their home country. That's always a struggle. And and friends are really uh, your family when you're on the mission field, right? Exactly. Friends are your family. Um, it's tough. Speaking of family, uh, since we've been here, we've had four nieces born and that we've never met. So that's been a struggle too, is family back home that we're missing their life. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're excited to, to, when we go on furlough to be able to meet our four nieces. So that, yeah. So friends who have become more like family to you leaving for a variety of reasons and those people who are your family, uh, being a, a long ways away from you and, and life moving on uh, for them and you not being able to be a part of it and your life moving on and, and them not being a part of it, you would say those are some of the bigger struggles that you've, you've had to deal with? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, tell me about, we've talked about family and, and friends and the difficulties that are related uh, to uh, them leaving uh, to you being so far away from them. Uh, But I also suspect that family and friends have been very helpful to you along the way and and very encouraging to you as uh, you were there. Would you like to share uh, any of those types of stories with us? Yeah, our family has supported us from the very beginning. Um, They knew it'd be hard for us to leave, but they said, you know, if God is calling you to go overseas and serve, then that's where you need to be because that's the best place to be. Um, They've never doubted us or doubted God, and they've always uh, just been behind us, supporting us fully, not only prayerfully, but just with encouraging words. And our church back home has also been wonderful. They just, they have done so much throughout the years to either help us get here, throwing fundraisers or um, just allowing us to share or even just uh, having our friends back in our church just uh, be a, a accountability partners and just uh, keeping us uh, on the right path. And when we get discouraged, encouraging us. And it's just been a wonderful, it's wonderful to have a good group of friends and family supporting you. Would you say that there is a person or maybe a few persons who have served as a mentor to you along the way? I haven't had just one person. I've had just several people throughout my uh, just life in different various points. As I had one instructor at Moody, just was able to speak into my life. And then when we were in Spokane, uh, uh, an elderly man, uh, just he would ask me the hard questions and uh, teach. He was just teach me how to to be a good uh, teacher. At that time, we were helping out with Sunday school class and. 
uh, he was mentoring us and how to, to lead a, uh, a cross-cultural Sunday school class. That was really neat. And uh, just friends at church, um, just always willing to ask the hard questions if I'm doing all right, uh, how are you doing? You seem a little bit down, but yeah, it was always good. Well, do you have any final suggestions or advice or encouragement for prospective missionary pilots? Yeah, I would just say prepare for the journey that God has uh, ahead of you. There might be a long road ahead of you to the mission field. It's going to be a blessing in many ways, but it's also going to be hard and trying. And at some points, he he may uh, be refining you, and refining doesn't always feel good, and it, it can uh, be tough. But push through that that tough time, and uh, you'll be a better person for it in the end. And uh, you'll be able to to say that you made it through, and that. Uh, Uh, you're able to to serve a wonderful God. All right. Great advice there. I wonder if there's a a book that was helpful to you along the way that you would like to recommend to our our listeners. And again, it can be something about missionary aviation. It could be something that helped you grow in your Christian walk or or even something that was useful when you were learning uh, to fly. And, And I'm just curious if there's something that you would like to share. Yeah, when uh, I was first interested, started to become more interested in mission aviation, I, I read the book Through the Gates of Splendor by Elizabeth Elliot, and uh, it was such an encouragement to see through her eyes the, the life of Nate Saint and other things that she went through in her life, and uh, it was just a, a huge encouragement, and uh, it pushed me more toward serving God. Very good. Um, that that is an outstanding a book, and I appreciate uh, you sharing it with with our listeners. Well, friend, how can our audience be praying for you and for your family? Yeah, uh, one thing is for safety and flight. While we're flying, we fly in a uh, a rugged area. Also, this is a big one: just being able to manage the stresses of life and ministry here in Papua New Guinea, um, and that. Uh, I'll be a godly dad and a a husband who points my family to Christ, both in good times and in the hard times. We also have an upcoming furlough in uh, June 2019, and uh, it's just a lot of work preparing to come back to the States and uh, stressful at, at the same time. So just preparing to come back to the States in 2019. Okay, well, I will definitely be praying for you in, in those areas. I will add these to the show notes for this episode, and we will have other folks, I'm sure, praying for you as as well. And I'll also add uh, the book that you mentioned uh, to, the, to the show notes as well, so people can uh, refer uh, to these things that you, you have mentioned by going to the, uh, the website and looking for this episode. Could you tell us about the ways that people could uh, connect with you, whether it be on uh, social media or through uh, Wycliffe if they wanted to learn more about you and, and continue to pray for you and maybe even uh, support you in, in your ministry and financially or otherwise? Yeah, there's a, a Wycliffe website called Wycliffe.org. If you go to the Give section, you can search for Fran and Janice Burgess, and 
if you'd like to give there, you can, and it, they, they give you a, a step-by-step uh, way to do that. You could also uh, reach me on Facebook. My name on Facebook is Francis Burgess, so F-R-A-N-C-I-S Burgess, and um, yeah, friend me on Facebook. Very good, and and I will make sure to include all those things in the in the show notes as well, so people will have a way to to connect with you if if they would like to. Well, Fran, let me just say that I I really appreciate this opportunity that I've had tonight. You've been an outstanding guest today, and I have enjoyed hearing your stories, and I know uh, that our listeners are going to enjoy them as well. I really appreciate the time that you have taken to help us all better understand missionary aviation and the many ways that God is using people like you around the world, and I do hope that we can Continue to stay in touch, and and please know that I will be praying for God's blessings on you and your family. Well, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to share and uh, for this podcast. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for this episode. We thank you once again for listening. You can learn more about the podcast and subscribe to it by visiting plainfaith.com. That's P-L-A-N-E faith.com. You will also find links there to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you are interested in becoming a patron of the show, you can do that as well by visiting patreon.com forward slash plain faith. And of course, Jimmy would love to hear from you personally. So feel free to email him at jimmy at plainfaith.com or by using the contact form on our website. Until next time. Remember that God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The intro and outro music for the Plain Faith podcast is a song called Chipper by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.com.